Hi, thanks for joining us. You're listening to Tell It From Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, with the goal of engaging the city and impacting the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's message is from our senior pastor, Dr. Abraham Joseph. If you want to know more about Calvary Baptist Church and its ministries, head over to www.cbcnyc.org. Let's go to God in prayer before we look to his word. Our God and our Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you're a God who speaks. Um, You're not like those idols that have a mouth but cannot speak, but you are God who speaks and you speak to us through your word for our instruction, for our encouragement, for our edification, for our call to obedience. I pray that your spirit would do all of that in in us today, God, that uh, he will bring about the obedience and faith and witness that ought to be yours, and it would be for your glory and for the lifting up of the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, that he may draw all people to himself through our witness, through word and life. Thank you that you're able to do this, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the fourth Sunday of Advent. We have been looking at various uh, themes uh, of Advent. Uh, We looked at preparing for the Lord's return uh, by waiting on God to act and for the Son to return. that preparation requires that we repent. To see God uh, is not something that uh, we can just appear before him unprepared, and God has provided repentance as a way to prepare ourselves for that. But we also prepare for the return of the king by bearing witness that he has already come and uh, that he will come again. And therefore, in how we live, how we speak, in in uh, Presenting the hope that we have, we are called to be witness. I'm thankful for Pastor Jim and Pastor Tim for preaching on the 10th and the 17th. Now we conclude our Advent series for the fourth topic, which is the fourth theme of Advent, which is uh, trust. Our, our, our sermon for today, our message from God's Word is on, on trusting our God who does the impossible. So, as always, a question for you. Is there something that you thought would be impossible that God made possible in your life? There's something that you thought would be impossible uh, that God made possible in your life. Give me a brief uh, example of one or two or three things that God has done for you. Hey, that's a testimony of every man in here who's married that... (laughs) That's right. Luis knows what it means to get up and show up. <laughs> it's God doing the impossible. My brother-in-law pointed out to my niece, Gabby, her, her birth is, uh, uh, and, her, and her life till now is uh, God's possibility in the midst of life's impossibility. Uh, there were several examples this morning as well. And last Sunday, one of our members told me of uh, someone they had been praying for 40 years. And it seemed like it would be impossible, not for God, but for that person to come to faith. But God does the impossible, and that person came to faith. So our lives are filled with God's possibilities in the midst of what seems impossible for us. And the question for us is, will we trust this God who does the impossible in all those great things that he's promised he would do? Uh, Advent is a strange season because it begins with looking ahead to what is to come, what is not yet 
happened, what God has promised to do before, at Christ, before we come to Christmas where we look back at what God has already done and God has already fulfilled. So we are often questioning what are we waiting for? We get confused. Do we pretend during Advent as though Jesus hasn't come and then on Christmas Eve or morning we surprise ourselves along with the gifts that oh Jesus has come. One of the things that throws us off is the delay uh, because uh, it's been 2,000 years since the Lord ascended and, and the church has been waiting. And even in the first century, there were people who questioned whether he would actually come. We've been waiting. Where is this coming as he has promised? Peter writes about that in First Peter 3. We get caught up in, in life as usual. We, we lose sight of the worlds to come. Uh, we are delighted that the Savior came, uh, but we are forgetful of his return. And we live as though this world is all that there is. Even as uh, Paul warns us that in, in 1 Corinthians 7, that we ought to live as people who live in light of the kingdom that is to come and that could come at any time, and not holding on to the things of the world as though they are ultimate. Even things like marriage, Paul says, and uh, they are not the ultimate. God's return and his kingdom are the ultimate, and Advent is waiting for that. But what do we do when we don't uh, see Advent for what it is, is that we turn it into a time of getting ready for Christmas. When I was a child, uh, you know, one of the good things about Christmas is you got new clothes during Christmas. And where I lived, you couldn't buy it off the rack. You had to go to the tailor and uh, uh, get it uh, made and all of that. And that was like getting ready for Christmas. You just get new clothes made. Or you do shopping before, uh, uh, you know, the stores get crazy and you get it wrapped up. And, you know, some people buy their gifts in January and hide it from their kids. Uh, so Advent becomes a time of getting ready for Christmas and we slip into these uh, celebrations that don't really anticipate Christ's return, uh, but we fool ourselves that this is the most wonderful time of the year. In some ways it is. There's a tree up on Rockefeller that we uh, can catch a glimpse if we can brave the crowds. Uh, there's a nice winter market uh, in, at Union Square where you can get really great hot chocolate and uh, this melted cheese spread that I wanted to go and try. There's the rockets at Radio City and uh, all of the other uh, presentations involved with that. Uh, it's a time of nostalgia. It's, a, it's family time. It's uh, cookies and, and brownies. And uh, it's a time for optimism. But optimism grounded in what? Sometimes in all our waiting for Christmas, we even forget what happened 2,000 years ago that we are celebrating on this day. And... Uh, Maybe when we are opening gifts, we think of him as the greatest gift. But Advent calls us to look forward to his return before we look back at Christmas of his first coming. And we wonder, shouldn't it be the other way around? Shouldn't it be Christmas first and then Advent? But, you know, not really. Because if we begin with the nativity and try to move forward, uh, the the one that is to come, that he's the judge of the universe, uh, we don't quite prepare ourselves for that because we are softened by this cute baby in the manger. And we won't be able to take the second coming seriously. But Advent is awaiting the return of the king in the present. As evangelicals, uh, we uh, believing in the second coming of Christ is part of orthodoxy. If you don't believe in the second coming of Christ, uh, you're not a believer. 
as much as the eternality of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, as much as the virgin birth are part of the orthodoxy, so also is the return of Christ. Sometimes we can reduce it into some kind of a personal entry into heaven or uh, maybe a rapture of the church. But there's so much more that God has promised at the return of his son. We are told that God will be all in all. All things will be set right. God's reign will be established forever. And Advent is the anticipation that the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters fill the, cover the sea. See, when we remember that Christ will return and make all things right, and that uh, the one who is coming is king and lord and judge, then we are ready to look back with gratitude that it is the same king, the same judge, the same lord who first came as an infant to redeem us and to, to prepare us for that kingdom that is to come. So we, uh, we observe Advent by waiting in hope for the glory of the Lord to be revealed. And uh, that, that waiting takes on various forms. We, we saw four of them during this Advent season. We saw three. We'll see the fourth one today. On the first Sunday, if Christ is going to return as judge and Lord and King to make all things right, we prepare by waiting for God to act because He has spoken. We prepare by hastening ourselves for that, not hastening the coming of the Lord, but hastening ourselves by being faithful to the one who is called us, being responsible to the calling that we have, being accountable. But the reality is while we do that, we sin. So part of that preparation is repentance, as Pastor Jim reminded us on the second Sunday. We are to turn away from the ways of wickedness and evil that we still live and turn to the way of the Lord so that we can be ready to see him, the one who is coming as judge of all, including us. For we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And repentance is part of that preparation. But as people who are called to repent, who return to God, we also have a witness that in Jesus Christ there is forgiveness. There is a new way of life as God intended. And we bear witness, as Pastor Tim reminded us last Sunday, uh, to the Lord who has come, who has accomplished our salvation by His death and His resurrection, who is going to return to not only complete our salvation, but to make all things new. And we bear witness to that, not just with our words, but also with our life that has already begun anew because of the spirit that who dwells in us who dwells in us and this morning we're going to look at trusting god to do the impossible as part of our preparation for the return of the lord jesus christ we're going to do that by looking at a passage in the gospel of luke luke chapter 1 verses 26 to 38 a familiar passage where the angel shows up and uh, uh, tells mary of what god intends to do through her uh, but it's a call to trust in what seems impossible for us, but what God makes possible. And it teaches us to trust in that same God who does the impossible as we wait upon Him to fulfill the promises that He has made to us that seem impossible. So we look at 1, 26 to 38 with the, uh, the, the troublesome greeting of the angel to Mary in 1, 26 to 29, and the impossible seemingly, at least to Mary, promise that He makes in Luke chapter 1, 30 to 34, and then the assurance of the angel and Mary's submission to uh, God in, in obedience and trust in Luke chapter 1, verses 35 to 38. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 1, 26 to 38. This section follows another announcement by the same angel to, uh, to Zechariah in chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. These are stories that you are familiar with. How many of you read uh, through Luke's gospel during Christmas time? Yeah, many of us do. So these are things we have read before, but uh, 
so this passage is right after the angel's announcement to uh, uh, Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah, and there's a lot of similarities and, and dissimilarities between what happens between angel and Zechariah and between the angel and, and Mary. Uh, there's lots of things that are similar. Gabriel is the same angel who speaks to both, and he has an announcement to both of them that they're going to have a son that they do not expect to have. And uh, he promises the greatness of the sons to be born, a greatness that is associated with what God is going to do at the end of the ages, which he has promised. Uh, the angel even specifies that what would be the name, what should be the name of these two sons to be born. Uh, and both Mary and Zechariah react with fear initially, and the angel assures both of them not to be afraid, and both respond with questions concerning the announcement. What we have is uh, uh, coming together that the story of John and the story of Jesus are together part of God's great big one story from creation to recreation, which he's going to accomplish through his son, Jesus Christ. But there's a lot of dissimilarities as well. There's a dissimilarity concerning this heritage. Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth are from a priestly family. Elizabeth, Zechariah has made it to the, to the top of priesthood where he is ministering in the presence of God, one screen removed from the Holy of Holies in the, in the, in the holy place when, when the angel appears to him. <laughs> and uh, the angel appears to Mary in Nazareth of all places. You don't expect angels, not even priests to show up in Nazareth. Zechariah and Elizabeth are described as people who have been righteous all their lives. Anybody here who can say that? And it's true. That's who they were. But about Mary's character, nothing is said. The location, again, one angel appears to Zechariah in the center of Israel's life and worship at the temple. But Mary in Nazareth... Uh, there's also this difference between the promises that are made. To Zechariah, it's the promise that a barren woman will conceive. An old barren woman will conceive. But in, in, in Mary's case, it's a virgin who will conceive. Zechariah is called to believe what God has done several times before. Uh, but Mary is called to believe something that God has never done before. Zechariah demands a proof or sign. How will I know this? He says. And is rewarded with silence. Mary asks for an explanation. How will this be? And God gives an explanation through the angel. Uh, John is said to be great before the Lord, but Jesus is said to be great in himself because he is the Lord. John will prepare the nation, but Jesus will save the nation. John will be filled with the Holy Spirit, but Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit. John will turn people, many, to God, but Jesus will rule over God's creation forever. So turn with me to Luke 1, 26 to 29. In the sixth month of the angel Gabriel, uh, sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. This is a story, again, we've read it many times over, at least once a year during Christmas. But sometimes it's the familiarity that keeps us from uh, seeing the significance of what is being said in this passage. We're told it happens at the sixth month. Sixth month of what? The sixth month of Gabriel's annunciation or announcement to, uh, to Zechariah that Elizabeth will conceive. And now Elizabeth has conceived. And it's the sixth month, and that's when 
I guess I, I've never been pregnant, so I don't know. But maybe it's the sixth month is when things become obvious, where maybe it's safe to ask a woman, uh, are you pregnant? Uh, before that, maybe not. So uh, uh, it's the sixth month. So that connects Elizabeth's pregnancy with what is going to be said uh, to Mary, as the angel will do it explicitly at the end of this passage. And it's angel Gabriel, who the same angel who had appeared to Zechariah, uh, he's the only named angel besides Michael, and they both appear in the book of Daniel, uh, speaking of the coming of the Son of Man at the end of the ages. Uh, and now he has appeared before Mary, as we will see, to, to show that God is about to reverse human sin and rebellion and death and, and the fall. Uh, he's going to proclaim the advent of the one who will save his people from their sins. He's going to announce the fulfillment of God's ancient promises. The promise he made to Eve that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The promise he made to Abraham that from his, by his seed all the nations will be blessed. The promise that he made to David that uh, one of his descendants will sit on his throne forever. And his kingdom will know no end. God's initiative is written all over this story. This is a proclamation about what God is going to do. And the surprise is that he has come to Nazareth to say that to this woman uh, far north from Jerusalem. Uh, you, don't, you know the story of Nathaniel. He, his big question is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? God is at work in obscure places among people that are not known as people, uh, as well-known people. And we are told uh, that uh, Gabriel appeared before a virgin. Uh, she's called a virgin twice before we are given her name. Uh, here's the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where uh, Isaiah is given a prophecy where uh, a, ver a young woman will conceive and bear a child. But here, um, Luke uses, and Matthew too, uses a very specific term for a virgin. A virgin will conceive. Never happened before. Virgin conception of Jesus in Mary's womb is by God's initiative, not by human will, as John would tell us. Uh, uh, barren women have conceived before by normal processes, by God's initiative, but never a virgin woman, and God is doing something new. And this woman, we are told, again, before her name is mentioned, that she's been betrothed. That is, uh, she is already, in one sense, uh, uh, the legally belongs to this man, who's, and the marriage will be consummated, and that's when she will leave her home and go live with him. But it has not happened yet. She's still betrothed, and this man's name is Joseph of the house of David. Angel connects Jesus to David's throne, to David's house, through Joseph. What about Mary's family? Which house is she from? Nothing. Mary herself will acknowledge in, the, in her song that we heard read that she belongs to the social margins. Uh, she identifies as uh, among the lowly, but her status is going to be reversed by God's doing. Finally, we hear her name, Mary. Nothing exceptional about her name either. About half, the, half a dozen girls on our street were probably called Mary. The most common name in Israel. Uh, and... It, Again, nothing special about this woman. Somebody said uh, the most extraordinary thing about Mary was her ordinariness. But not ordinary to God. 
The angel greets her. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Uh, it's often mistranslated as Hail Mary, full of grace. It, it could possibly be that, but it's misunderstood. The word that's usually translated hail is the word for greeting. It's greetings, Mary. Or it could even be translated rejoice, Mary. Why is she to rejoice? Because Not because she is full of grace, but because grace, but God has favored her. And God is with her. When, when scripture speaks of God being with someone, it's, it's not only God's presence with that person, it's God's presence toward God's calling. So when Jesus tells us in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, 18 to 20 I am with you even to the end of the age, it's not just mere presence, but presence for the calling. That is to go to the ends of the earth and make disciples of all nations. So also Mary is being called for what God is calling her to do, but it's with God's presence that she will carry it out. But Mary was greatly troubled. God has looked upon her favorably, upon her lowly status, but she is troubled by the saying. She tries to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Zechariah too was troubled when the angel first announced. Uh, but here we are told that Mary was not troubled by the appearance of the angel. The angels, when they show up, usually the first thing they have to say is, fear not, because people are terrified and uh, sometimes they even want to worship the angel because they're such fearsome looking creatures. And the angel usually responds with fear not. And so also for Mary, but Mary we are told is not a trouble by the appearance, but by the saying of the angel. Wouldn't we like it when we are told that God's favor rests upon you? God is with you? See, uh, when God's calling is unexpected, it can be perplexing. It could be disturbing. It could be disrupting. And Mary seeks to discern what this greeting means. This is going to be the ongoing call of Mary. She consists, she, she, you know, we have that song, Mary, did you know? Uh, she knew, but she doesn't know either because she, she's always longing to discern what it means. But the angel assures her in, in verses 30 to 34. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? Do not be afraid, Mary. That's what the first words of the angel to Zechariah, to Mary, and whenever an angel shows up to people. The reason is, again, the angel repeats, you have found favor with God. Uh, Mary had no claim for honor before the world, let alone before God, but she is the object of God's grace. God gives grace to the humble, is what scripture teaches. Mary herself will acknowledge her lowly status and how God, she had received God's grace. And that's how you and I are here. Because God's grace is not limited to Mary. We too are here as God's people, God's children, not because of anything we are, but because of God's grace. We often associate grace with forgiveness. It is because of grace and because of the work of the Lord Jesus we are forgiven. But grace has to do with everything about life, our, our uh, calling in life, our uh, being believers. Life itself is by God's grace. When I was at a seminary, one of our Old Testament classes, uh, uh, the professor was teaching us about Abraham, and you know, Abraham lies about his wife not once, twice. And then it's right after that, after the second lie, God will tell Abimelech, 
don't touch this man's wife for he is my prophet. So my professor asked, how is it that God would call this man, uh, he's the first person to be called a prophet in the scriptures. Uh, how could God call this man who has just lied twice about his wife as a, his prophet? Well, I didn't know the answer, I was just a first year student. Um, he said, it's not just salvation, God's calling is also by grace. We are called to be God's servants, whatever that God calls us to serve as, it's by grace. God's grace to Mary is a son that she will bear, and not any son. There are seven predictions that the angel makes about the son. First four have to do with his conception, and the last three about his messianic rule. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and bear a son. A virgin will conceive. It's all about God's initiative. That's never ever happened before, never ever happened since. It's God's work. She will be the mother of the Messiah. Her son is the son of God. In the early church, Mary was called the Theotokos, uh, the God-bearer. Even today, the Roman Catholic Church calls her Mary the mother of God. What the Roman Catholic Church has done is made it into an honorific uh, term for Mary. That she, but it was not about Mary. It was about the one who was born of Mary was not her son, but the one who has already existed as God's son, who took human form through her womb. And in that sense, she was the bearer of God. Because the one who was born of her was not any child, but the son of God. And you shall call his name Jesus. God chooses the name for his incarnate son, even as he picked the name for John. Uh, see, name has to do with one's identity, one's character. God has named him. He is who God has said he is. His character as son of God means he, has, he shares the same character of God. Whatever is said about God could be said about Jesus. His role, his work, his mission is all by God's decision, the one who has named him. And the name Jesus means Yahweh saves. God saves. Mary in her song calls God her savior. But it is here her son through whom God will bring about his salvation. And therefore he's called great. See, John was said to be that he would be great in the presence of the Lord. But Jesus is greater than John. Uh, Jesus is great in himself as much as God is great, as we are told in Deuteronomy chapter 10. As called, and, and Jesus is called great in Titus chapter 2 verse 13. And he is the one that whom John is called to serve. Jesus is Lord. His greatness, unlike people who call themselves great in this world, will be exercised in obedient submission to his Father's will, even to death on a cross. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. God is repeatedly called the Most High throughout the book of Luke and the uh, Gospel of Luke and Acts. Uh, he's the son of God. Uh, the, the kings of Israel were called the sons of God because they were, at their installation, they were anointed uh, as God's son. But Jesus is not God merely by his messianic role or because of his uh, title. Uh, Jesus is the son of God even at conception. Actually, he had to go even farther back. Jesus is eternally the son of God. No wonder then, the first one to call Jesus God's son in the flow of the narrative is God himself. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased, God would say at his baptism, and again at his transfiguration. God's, Jesus, the one who was born of Mary, is the one who's always existed as the divine person, will now be part, will add humanity to himself by being born of Mary, the virgin. 
The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Jesus will rule from David's throne as God's son. Uh, this is the fulfillment of God's promise to David. God's promises are always fulfilled. But if you looked at reality, it looked as though David's dynasty had run into the ground. Right after Solomon, the empire uh, divides into two, and uh, eventually they both are taken into exile. Where is David's line? Where is the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7? That your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Well, God himself will fulfill that promise as he always does when he gives us his word. And we are told that this, the reign of, Je of Jesus, unlike his father David, would be forever. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. There's no end to his rule. A promise that is again repeated of his kingdom, there will be no end. Chronologically, time wise his kingdom is forever as far as even space goes his kingdom is to the ends of the earth his kingdom is over all of creation jesus will bring about the forever rule of god as the narrative continues and we we, we as we we see that he not only rules over jacob but over all of creation uh, this is the fulfillment of not only second samuel 7 but of psalm 2 where god gives the nations as an inheritance to his son. No wonder then at the Great Commission, Jesus sends us to the ends of the earth, to all nations, because all nations belong to him. He is the right ruler of over all the nations. So when we go to people, to nations, and declare Jesus Christ as Lord, we are not giving them something new news. It's news that they should have known already. This morning's sermon, uh, someone, uh, John reminded me that I had no uh, Lord of the Rings reference in my sermon. So here's a great place in Lord of the Rings. If you read the book, there are lots of places where they didn't know that the king has already been crowned. And as these hobbits make their way back home, they go around telling people that there is a new king. The king has returned and his throne has been established and he's making all things new. That's fiction, but this is real. real. Mary asks, a question that's unlike Zechariah's question. Zechariah had a question uh, asking for proof. But Mary, um, Zechariah asked, how will I know this? I said, yeah, you, uh, and uh, Gabriel pulls rank. I am Gabriel who serve in the presence of God. You will be silent from now on. Thankfully, he will respond in trust and obedience at the naming of the child and his mouth is open. But, uh, but uh, see, Zechariah should have known God has done things like that before. He opened Sarah's womb. He opened Hannah's womb. He's done this before. A barren woman uh, giving birth, uh, conceiving by God's initiative through normal process has happened before. So he should have believed, but instead he asked for proof. But Mary does not ask for proof. She's asking for an explanation given her impossible situation. She's a virgin. A virgin is never conceived. It's impossible for a virgin to conceive. So she asks, how will this be? Not how can this be, but how will this be? Explain how this would happen. This is faith-seeking understanding. Uh, she, she has accepted that God is able to do, God will do what he said he would do, but she wants to know how that would happen. Uh, quite often, Mary's virginity uh, can be presented as a, uh, maybe a sign of her holiness or her virtue. It's not. All women at, of her age at that time would have been virgins in that culture. But what the virginity of Mary presents is an obstacle to her conception, an obstacle that would be humanly impossible to overcome, but not for God's creative work. So Jesus' conception is beyond extraordinary. Uh, 
Mary's question sets up the, the angel's answer about the extraordinary nature of this one who is the Messiah. Jesus will exceed all expectations concerning the Messiah. He's not just a, a divinely anointed Messiah, he's a divinely conceived Messiah. One who is uniquely related to God. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Uh, the angel explains the mode of conception and it will be an act of God. He uses these parallel statements. The Holy Spirit also called the power of the Most High. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8 also we are told, Wait in Jerusalem till the power of, uh, from high comes upon you. The Holy Spirit who is the power of the Most High. He will come upon Mary or he will overshadow Mary. Overshadowing has to do with the presence of God. In Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit of God overshadowed, hovered over the waters as God brings about creation. Uh, in Exodus, uh, the Spirit hovers over the, the, the people who are being brought out of captivity in Egypt as God creates them into a nation that will enter into the promised land. And here, God is bringing about His new creation starting from the womb of Mary when the eternal Son of God uh, always existent in divine form, takes on human nature from the womb of Mary through the creative work of the Holy Spirit. There are no words, there are no sexual connotations in this passage. Even the normal word for conception is not used here. Uh, she will conceive by the work of the Holy Spirit that will be present with her, will work on her. And uh, there's nothing that's said about the actual process as well, even as well, even like the resurrection, we are only told that he rose from the dead. See, we would like to know more about how it happened, but uh, God keeps his mysteries to himself beyond our prying eyes and ears. But what we are told is that, therefore, because it would be the work of the Spirit, the child will be to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Uh, holy, not just in the sense of being set apart, uh, as all firstborns are set apart, but this is one is holy uh, because his humanity is created by the Holy Spirit, whose whole life will be directed by the Holy Spirit. Because his humanity is created by the Holy Spirit, he will be sinless. The Catholic Church has tried to find a way to preserve the sinlessness of Christ by making Mary sinless. No, Mary was sinful like anybody else, everyone else. But Jesus is being kept from the contamination of Mary's sin by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the explanation for Jesus' sinlessness. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age is also conceived. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Mary, unlike Zechariah, didn't need a sign, didn't ask for one, but she's given one. Uh, her previously barren uh, relative Elizabeth is now entered the sixth month of her pregnancy. And right after this episode, Mary will rush to see what God has done for Elizabeth, and Elizabeth will already know what God has done for Mary, and she would greet her with this uh, uh, extraordinary words, who am I that the Lord, the, the mother of my Lord, Jesus is already called Lord, the name that is given to God by Elizabeth, and, and John who is in the womb of Elizabeth would already leap for joy when seeing uh, the one who is uh, in the womb of Mary. 
for nothing will be impossible with God. That's the final confirmation. Not a word from God will be impossible. That's what the translation could say. For nothing is also, for not a word from God will be impossible. And, and Mary responds to that in that sense because she says, may it be according to your word. Because God has spoken, God will do it. Nothing is impossible for God. It, it reminds us of the question that God poses to Abraham when he tells them about a son that, he will have, that Sarah will have. And Sarah laughs with skepticism. And, uh, and God asks, why did she laugh? Is, is anything impossible for God? Here it's a statement. No, nothing is impossible for God. God will fulfill his plan. God will fulfill his purpose even if it defies human expectation and human possibilities. God... Nothing is impossible with God. Confirms this, the certainty of the promise. See, conception without sexual intercourse, conception by a virgin is impossible for humans. But no obstacle for the creative power of God. Everything that God does is only what God does. Incarnation, resurrection, salvation. All of these are impossible for us. But these are all God's possibilities. God who does the impossible See, the end of the story is not about human incapacity, but about God's possibility to do that which seems impossible for us. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's the right answer. Trust and obey. She responds, giving assent. She's a model of a true disciple, one who trusts and obeys. Uh, she doesn't know what it all means. In the passage we're going to look at this uh, evening, she, she will ponder over these things. But she believes. She, her, she has faith that seeks understanding. Quite often people say, well, if I understand, maybe I'll believe. You'll never go to faith if you start with understanding. You start with faith, God gives you understanding. She doesn't ask for a confirming sign. She trusts God to do what he intends to do. For all that God does is good. She accepts the angel's word. She accepts that nothing is impossible for God. She welcomes her role in God's plan and God's calling. She calls herself a slave of the Lord. A slave is the lowest among uh, humans, but also uh, when it's, once one is a servant, slave of the Lord, a servant of the Lord, it's a high calling. Joshua, David, Israel were all ser servants or slaves of the Lord. But also notice she, she not only trusts and accepts the high calling, but she also accepts the shame and, and dishonor that goes with it. See, God's calling not only brings honor, but often brings deep trouble with that. See, she receives that perceived disgrace of a, uh, of a pregnant, unmarried woman. She willingly yields to neighbors who will disdain her for what they perceive as adulterous relationship. There will even be hints of that thrown at Jesus in his adulthood. We, don't, we know our father is Abraham. We don't know who your father is, they would say. It will be a rearrangement of life as she knew it. There was a risk that Joseph might divorce her. There's a hint of that in Matthew's gospel. But with all of that, God has spoken. God has called. God will do the impossible. Mary trusts. Mary obeys. And the angel departed from her. Gabriel's mission is accomplished. Wait, wait, don't leave yet. I have a lot of questions. Can you ease the pathway for me? Can you show up when these people are mocking me and, 
No, none of that. Mary will carry out her obedience by herself, but not by herself, because who is with her? The Lord is with you, is what the angel said. And that was enough for Mary to carry out her obedience. What about us? Well, the story is first about Jesus, as all of Scripture points to him. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Uh, Many things about him in the the seven predictions that uh, Gabriel made, uh, many of them have already been fulfilled. And because they have already been fulfilled, we have assurance that the rest of the things that are yet to come will come. Jesus is the Davidic Messiah. Uh, He is king not only over Israel, but his reign will extend to the ends of the earth. Um, And he will accomplish... As strange as it may sound, his mission, his reign will be established through his death on a cross. Foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. But it is that means by which God will establish his rule. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is God. The story tells us God is at work. God's power may be mysterious, but it's not distant. God is with us. And what is humanly impossible for us is overcome by God's power. See, God has already done much that is impossible for us. In this story, it's the virgin conception. That God would become flesh. Uh, yes, God has done that. That God would come and be one of us and accomplish our salvation by death on a cross at our hands, bearing our sins. Impossible for us. Not for God. That God would restore the dynasty of David that had run into the ground. Impossible, not for God. Creation, you know, we think of ourselves as self-made people, but Scripture tells us we didn't make ourselves. Revelation, we can't go and make our way, build a tower, get to God and see who He is. God has revealed Himself to us. It's impossible for us, not for God. Redemption, one of the poets tells us, nothing can save us that is possible. If it's something you can do, climb a tall hill, cleanse yourself in a river, that won't bring salvation because saving ourselves is impossible. Salvation is made possible because God has done it. Our salvation comes from beyond the human possible, from the God of the impossible. Each one of you here, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God dwells in you through the Spirit of God. That's impossible. How could God dwell, uh, the God who is omniscient, omnipresent, dwells in us? How could that be? Impossible for us, but not for God. The church, us, the persecuted lot, one that's mocked, it's a work of God. It is through us that God is proclaiming the kingdom of His Son. If God has done all of these that's impossible, will we trust Him for what He has promised to do that seems just as impossible? Will we trust Him that Christ will return bodily and we will have a fuller experience of who He is? Will we trust that we will see Him face to face? Will we trust Him that He will complete our salvation We know that our salvation is not complete because we groan along with creation, longing for the day when our lives will be found pleasing to Him. Hence repentance. But that God is going to finish that salvation. The dead in Christ shall rise. One of the things that uh, a person mentioned in the first service about God's impossibilities uh, or things that seem impossible that God has made possible, she said, God has helped her overcome the fear of death. If we believe that 
the dead in Christ shall rise, then there's no need for the fear of death. We believe, do we believe that Christ will establish God's kingdom in its fullness? Impossible for us, but not for God. We believe that all Israel will be saved when Jesus returns. All Jews who are alive will finally recognize him as the Messiah. Doesn't seem possible to us, but God will do it. Do we believe that all of God's enemies will be put down forever when Christ returns? That there will be no more evil or suffering or disappointment? God has said he would do it. So he will do it even if it seems impossible for us. Our hope will turn into sight. All creation will be renewed. God will dwell with us. We talk about going to heaven, but scripture talks about God coming to dwell with us in the new creation. God will be all in all and his kingdom will be established forever. All will be well, but that day is not yet. That day still seems impossible for us. During Advent, we sit in the darkness along with those who are in darkness, those who are in the shadow of death, but we sit with hope unlike this world, with great joy knowing that God who said will do what seems impossible for us. See, when, when the promise came to Mary, it didn't seem like it was possible for us, not just the virgin birth, uh, that the Messiah would come. They were still a subjugated people living under the oppression of Rome, even though they were in the promised land. It didn't seem like out of this obscure uh, people and a woman at that would come one who would be the king over all of Jacob, and but all of creation? Mary believed. Mary submitted. Mary obeyed. Mary suffered. Mary pondered, all because she trusted in the God who is able to do what seems impossible to us. Would we trust him for our personal needs? We live in a broken world. We are not spared suffering or sickness or death. Will we believe that God is bringing on a new world and live in light of that in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of our pain. Will the world see in us a hope that comes from knowing that God is the God who does that which is impossible for us? As a church, the church in the world is one, an institution that suffers, is mocked, persecuted, and within us there is strife, disunity, scandal. Will we hold on to God's promise that God will take people like us, the church, and present us to his son without any blemish, without any wrinkle? Uh, that the church will be made perfect is God's word. Or will we deconstruct and uh, give up on the church and write it off as an institution that has no uh, validity anymore and we all individually follow Jesus? No, the church has a future because God said he would do it. How about the world in which we live? It's devastated by war and greed and oppression and selfishness and cruelty and racism and poverty and hunger and violence and homelessness and strife and the list goes on and on. But God promises a whole new world in which all of these things will be taken away. Do we believe that? But you know how God makes that known to this world? Through us. That that renewal that he's going to bring about has already begun in us. It is in us that he gives us a foretaste of the world that is to come. Where by our love for one another we will tell the world that God has sent his son. That's our testimony. By our hope, by our joy, by our peace, by our, our view of our possessions and how we steward them. All of this bear witness to the world that we believe in a God who does that which is impossible to us. Advent is a time of preparation. Advent is a time of repentance.
Advent is a time of uh, bearing witness, but most importantly, Advent is a time of trusting in this God who does all things according to his word, things that seem impossible to us, but nothing is impossible for him. As those who have believed in him, let's confess together what he has already done and in faith proclaim what he is going to do. Say with me, Christ has died, we remember his death. Christ is risen, we proclaim his resurrection. Christ will come again and we await his coming in glory, trusting in the one who has promised and will do it. Let's pray together. Our Father, you, you chose Mary to be the mother of your son, the promised Savior. You've granted her your grace and your favor, and we are here as your servants by that same grace. We pray, Father, that we would, like Mary, embrace this holy will and uh, with her rejoice in your salvation and make it known, trusting you to accomplish that which you have promised. That which seems impossible for us, but not for you. For with you, nothing is impossible. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbcnyc.org slash give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to tell it from Calvary.